welcome to Various Things. I'm Gary Lama. Today's conversation is with someone who is making a big difference in the lives of the young kids who call her their teacher, Robin Cullum. I first met Robin years ago, and through Bits of Fate, I've gotten to know her more and more. Robin teaches kids that are deemed to have special needs. They may receive this designation for a variety of reasons, but the main thing they have in common is that teaching to the lesson is probably not going to work for them. These kids need to be engaged in different ways to stoke their interest and pull them into the fold. And Robin has come up with ways to be an effective educator to them, so effective that she has won awards for her teaching. This is one of those episodes where what we talk about transcends a lot of the specifics and gets more into the larger changes and happenings in our society. The kids are our future, after all. And the strategies and techniques Robin has developed may be the way to move forward. Building relationships between educator and student based on mutual respect and understanding, and teaching to the strengths of an individual student rather than just trying to make them all fit the same lesson plan. So with that, here's my interview with Robin Cullum. Enjoy. So how did you kind of get into like punk and, and, and um, you know, local music and all that? Well, it kind of goes like way back to like fifth grade. <laughs> like I was, um, I remember just not like, I don't know if not connecting to people is not, not the right word, but I just found like there was something different and about me and the way I thought and they thought. And I remember sitting at the lunch table all by myself. I would have my hit parader magazine or metal edge and like no one would talk to me. And then it kind of grew that I had a friend named Russell who, who sat down next to me <laughs> and we had like the same oh, well, let's look at this magazine. Oh my gosh, look at this. And then we just, it just kind of evolved from there. And it's just kind of amazing how once you kind of recognize that about yourself, like what you put out comes back to you and you kind of end up meeting more people that are into what you're into. Does that make sense? Totally, totally. I mean, like, I, I think at that age, like, it's so generalized and so kind of broad, like, 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 like kids when they're younger, they always, I mean, uh, at least my generation is like, they listen to like classic rock in like seventh grade or something like that. Yeah. Um, and they were listening to like, I think when I was in fifth grade, it was, I don't know if I think that's past new kids on the block, but it was like these boy bands and I didn't have anything in common with that. And like this kind of like fangirling over these boys and like, I'm like, that just wasn't me. I'm like, I just want to read my magazine and have my nose stuck in a book and no one else seems to like that. <laughs> was was that a big part of your uh life when you were younger like um doing a lot of like schoolwork and stuff like that did you do well in school i did well in school but it was really hard for me um, right okay it was super hard i was impulsive i had a hard time focusing and it just wasn't interesting it mm -hmm. was i think concepts came really easily to me but then i was bored and then when you're bored you know you're kind of idle then you you kind of wander and get into trouble um so it didn't like fit for me. I remember my fourth grade year, I had a desk in the hall, like almost the entire school year. Like I didn't get to Why? talk to anyone because I was, I was inattentive. I, you know, had, they put you in the hall. Yeah. Cause I was disrupting other kids because I had oh. lots of questions and wanted to know everything. <laughs> wow. Right. Yeah. So like I was that kid, I heard a noise in the room. I needed to find out where it came from. <laughs> <laughs> do you think you had ADHD as a child or something? Yes, I do. <laughs> I think that um, also 
I was one of those kids where I don't want to say it was a learning disability because things did come easily to me, but then there were definitely gaps where things were really hard for me and I had to work really, really hard. And I didn't mind working hard to, especially math, like reading came really easily to me and all I wanted to do was read. Math was really hard, this kind of procedural remembering all these steps and why does it even work? Like it was just like reading German and um, no one wanted to really like teach me except for one way that they taught everyone. And it just, it didn't work for me. So my brother pretty much taught me school after school. We would sit at the kitchen table and he would do all my work with me again in a very different way. Oh, wow. And isn't that crazy? He was um, nine years older than me and he was just excelled at everything, but he could break it down to where I, it made sense. So he was able to see like kind of the gap between what they were doing at school and, and the way you learned and kind of bridge that. Right. That I just learned differently, that I I couldn't be taught like everyone else, that I needed you, breaks. I needed to stand up. I needed to do a lot of things that, well, you know, growing up when I did that, that just didn't happen. You were expected to do things one way. Oh, I mean, they're, they're aiming for like the lowest common denominator. I mean, not in like a particularly negative way, but it's just, you know, they're, they're trying to like knock 80% of the teaching out with one method, you know what I mean? And like, if you happen to be in like, you know, if you happen to be in a way that isn't compatible with that, would you think you were being under challenged? Um, I think this sounds so like, I don't know. I think that I was bored. I was bored and they wanted us to all kind of be a certain way and fit into this nice, neat little box in this school community. And I felt like I didn't fit in. And I guess that's kind of what led me on this journey. And eventually like just not giving a shit anymore. It's like, I'm just going to be who I am. And then other people who were like me, we were like magnets to each other. When did that change happen? Do you think when, when you kind of like accepted, like, I'm just going to be me. Um, about sixth grade. Like the girls that I went to school with were really mean to me. They, they didn't like me. And at the time, this is so bizarre. Like to even think back on this, I was a, I figure skated and that was, I went before school, after school, and that was, those were my friends. And it was almost an outlet because I didn't, my mom was an awesome mom, just trying to find things I was interested in where I, where I saw myself and I could be myself because I, I really just struggled. Like kids were really mean to me because I, I was, I was different. Like I was the bookworm and you know how that is when we were growing up, you know, I wore glasses, there's four eyes in the corner over there reading it. Like it was torture. Right. Yeah. If there's anything different about you, either in a negative or an exceptional way, like you're, uh, <laughs> if you stick out, you're, you, people are going to say stuff to you. It sucks. I don't really know how to like prevent that. It's like some weird kind of herd leveling behavior or something. <laughs> but you know, it kind of, I think that struggle came out like in a super, it led me on a different path that was brought me so much more happiness. Like I said, like people became like magnets to me. And these are all people that are my family. Like to this day, they're who I call when something exciting happens in my life. And, you know, you meet these certain people, you're drawn to each other. And it just almost seems magical. Like I know we talked about becoming acquaintances at St. Ed's and like these different shows, but it's almost magical how it all happens, how all these people 
end up being drawn together. And we almost, I felt like we kind of raised each other. I don't know if sure. that makes sense, but I, I feel like we definitely raised each other. No, I mean, that totally makes sense. Um, you know, and I, I wonder if people that aren't in those situations, like they aren't the folks that stand out. They aren't the folks that get picked on. I wonder if, if they, I'm not sure if they have the same experience. With, I, I don't with, know that they people. have that community that we did and um, letting people be who they are and where they see themselves. I, I don't know that they have that. I do. I wonder that myself. You know, you're a teacher now. Yes. Did you have any clue that that's where you wanted to end up? No, no clue. In high school, I kind of, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I felt like a lot of us felt that way. Like, even with my own son, like we were kind of making these decisions that I feel like you change so much from the time you're 16, 17, when you're making these big decisions to when you're in your early 20s. So I didn't have the idea of teaching in my brain at all. I really like graphic design. I um, that's ended up what I ended up going to, to school for. And I went through the ad center at VCU for art direction, which kind of led me on a, a different path that I didn't expect either. Like from there, I decided that I think we all go through this growing up in Richmond. There's at some point where we feel like we just have to leave. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> we, like we don't realize that we're cursed to just come right back. But, but we feel I think that like, might be um, anyone that grows up in any city though, honestly. I think I think there's yeah, that, that thing of like wanting to get out and discover the world that you don't know. Yeah, and I had $100 in my pocket. I'm like, well, I have a college degree. That's what they say you need, so let's go do something. I moved to New York City with $100 in my pocket. Um, oh, wow. Ran into someone that I knew from Richmond, and we lived together <laughs> for years. <laughs> wow. And I ended up working in fashion design, which wasn't – graphic design necessarily, but it, I mean, design theory is kind of the same, no matter how you apply it. And I did that for five years. And what was wild is like, I tried so hard to get away from Richmond, but like I would sit on like my front stoop and literally once a week, someone would walk by and be like, Oh, Hey, (laughs) it's like, I couldn't get away. Like my old roommate, Chris Terry, we lived together over here off Belmont Avenue he moved in like to New York city and I got a call. I was like, Hey, I live in, I think he was living, uh, was he in Brooklyn? He may have been He's like, Hey, I'm living here now. You want to hang out? I'm like, that's so weird. Didn't I just leave from like living with you? (laughs) (laughs) You grew up in Southside, right? I grew up um, in Powhatan, like right at the line by James river high school. Yeah. Southside. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Pretty much like, which is an interesting area. Like my family grew up there. So you kind of had like, I don't want to say like class warfare, but it kind of was. <laughs> like you had well, like, yeah, there's all, there's like folks that are like kind of country that like have lived there. And then there's this influx of like, like higher income houses and stuff being built out there too. Right. And those kids live like, I literally live like right on the, the county line. So those kids, um, went to James River. Right. And we right. were the kids that went to Powhatan. It was like <laughs> this oh, weird wow. like social divide, right? Like that that's the money was like right on the other side of the, the county line, which has changed now. But it was just so bizarre to kind of grow up in like this almost like there's one class on this side of the county line and then you're just these these poor <laughs> country folks. It was so weird. 
how did you find that that kind of difference when when you're going like from Richmond to New York City? Like all, because I mean that's a wealthy <laughs> city. It was a lot easier than you would think. Like I was, you know, I was in my was that twenty two, and just fearless. Like I didn't, I didn't have any fear. And I think that when you don't have fear when you're younger, and you just kind of decide you're going to do something and. I think that's just how my brain works. I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I just figure it out. Like I literally had a hundred dollars in my pocket and it was just so easy. Like my friend Kit who um, lived in Richmond, she was there working as a tattoo artist. I moved in with her and then I met all these other people. And I remember, I don't drink now, but I remember going to a bar and meeting my boss, like the lady I ended up working for. And I just had a conversation with her and she was like, Hey, I think you need to work for me. And it just like all happened so fast. It was wild. And then I lived in an area that now is ridiculously expensive, but you know, I'm sure everyone knows, like I lived in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And at that time, like you could afford to live there. It wasn't cheap, but it was affordable. This was like 2002-ish, 2003. 2001, 2002. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like 
something in my head was like changing, like this kind of cutthroat industry where you're made to feel like, oh, if I, I can get rid of you tomorrow and I can hire someone for less, like that didn't work for me anymore. I really hated, it was kind of traumatic, like to always, I liked what I did, but I lived in fear. Um, I started working with kids and kind of gears started turning. And around that time, my mom got ill. And I just, I realized it had been five years and I needed to be back here because I didn't know in my gut, like intuitively, I didn't know how much time I had left with her. So I moved oh. back here. So what was the plan? I mean, cause you were doing fashion design up there. Like what did you do for work when you got back here? When I got back, I, um, I spent a lot of time taking care of my mom and it was really weird. Um, I had people reach back out to me and I was doing like visual merchandising and like designing like display windows and all this stuff. And it was fine. And it gave me, it was creative and I enjoyed it, but it also gave me time to be with my mom. And from there, I just kind of started going back to school. And by the time, you know, my mom, I know my mom did pass away, but during this time she did get better. And by the time like she was better and, you know, we kind of bridged that first gap, I had already finished like getting a second degree and then I was able to teach and I was uh, at that time I met my my first husband I was pregnant had a baby like <laughs> finished all Good of that Lord. I know right <laughs> you had a bunch of so you see so you, you lose a parent you change your career you have a family have a child how far away was all that from each other <laughs> It was all around the same time. Now, maybe the school was a distraction, um, yeah. but I also think it was part of me just when you kind of see, I don't want to get like too deep here, but when you see someone's like mortality and you kind of yeah. see someone's life ending, it, it really, and you're watching it, it, it really changes the way you think about things. Like, For sure. There was, no, there was no time to not be happy and try to do things that I felt were positive and bringing joy and good to the people that I served or I was around like there wasn't time to wait for that it's just kind of where my brain went and I also enjoyed it like I am a lifelong learner I think most teachers are like I just I kind of jumped into it and it it also I think was really therapeutic to have that while I was going through everything else yeah well I mean I can imagine because it's you know it's it's one thing to go through that, but it's also another thing to go through. I think I think one of the hardest things when you're going through something like that is is trying to figure out what your life is going to look like without this person there anymore. And if you don't really have anything changing in your life at that time, and it, you know it's just like you know your normal life, and now that person's gone, that that can be really hard because it, it just feels like maybe you don't. You don't really have much say in it or something like that. Oh, yeah. It's totally out of your control. And like, and the, I think the hardest, I think you, you're right. No matter what anyone says or does, it doesn't change the inevitable. Yeah. It changed things for me. And I had, despite knowing what was come, I was changing also. Yeah. And like preparation for what life, the next part of life was like. That's a lot. You know, and I mean, maybe it's better that it was a lot all at once rather than having all that stuff like spaced out by like six years because that would just seem insane kind of. But like, 
God. So like in the short period of time, now you're graduated with a child and going into teaching. Yeah, specifically, you know, I I knew based on um, the kids that I was volunteer with volunteering with it, I wanted to be a special education teacher. Um, the kids that I volunteered and worked with, they were mm-hmm. me, right? Like I related to them immediately. Like they were, they were me as a kid and it just sure. it came really, really naturally, like how to talk to them. Like even now, like then and the kids I work with now, like we don't even really have to speak to each other sometimes, not because we don't want to, but it's like, I don't know. I just, I get them. And intuitively I pick up on every little thing they're doing, like the way their eyes are moving or their body language, like just the littlest things that I think a lot of people don't take the time. I kind of equate it to like being in a car. Like you see things out the window and you think you see them, but then when you walk by like the same block again and you like slowly look around, like you see so many more details. And I think my my mind's always like scanning that because it's kind of fascinating, like the kids I work with, I love their perspective, I love everything about them, and I just kind of pick up on these things immediately, and like, we can like look at each other and communicate it without ever saying a word, sometimes for whole class periods, because they just don't want to talk, <laughs> they don't feel Aww. like that day. <laughs> now, when you, so, well, I mean, so it sounds like, I mean, it's a great fit for you, because, um, I mean, what you're basically describing there is you're you're relying on, like, intuitive knowledge basically like like your intuitive senses to kind of figure out how to engage these kids with what they need to engage with whereas i think a more traditional approach to teaching is like there's fucking none of that (laughs) it's just like no we're talking and if you're not able to pay attention well fuck you so right no totally and I feel like you know people think like from like punk to academia is not like this normal trajectory but it um it makes the most sense to me (laughs) it makes the most sense school was just authoritarian to me like there was this person I wasn't supposed to question I wasn't supposed to ever have any new ideas to progress or make things maybe better for myself and my peers and even the teacher (laughs) like but that wasn't allowed so for me, it just made sense to kind of flip that on its head. And there's been lots of times where I'm like, oh, maybe I'll get fired for the way I teach, but I don't really care. Like, I'm not an authoritarian figure <laughs> in, the, in the classroom. I get the kids respect me, but I don't do it through authority and, like, these orders that they have to do things a certain way. Yeah, and, and, and you've actually, like, gotten, like, awards for the way that you teach. Yeah, it's been it's been kind of weird. Like I just I do what I do and I um I don't know, I try to do my best. I do it for myself, I do it for the kids and I've been really fortunate along the way. I've I know that we have a mutual friend, um, you know, um Rob McAdams and right. he's been such a a huge like inspiration in how I teach because for years like I was just doing my own thing, like kind of teaching a different way, but it worked. It worked really well for me, and it worked really well for my kids, and it was totally relationship-based. Like, you can't put in the academic work until that work is done. Like, that work has to be done first. And some days in my classroom, academics just have to wait. Like, there are more important things um, that have to be worked on. And for me, it's always building relationships and understanding kids and where they see themselves. Um, They may not see themselves where – 
the rest of the class does, and that's okay. But I like for them to have that opportunity, and maybe that's through the arts, which is what I'm really passionate about is incorporating arts into the curriculum. And I met Rob, and it totally, like, validated me. (laughs) From there, I was really fortunate, just people that he introduced me to that shaped me even more. And then from there, you know, I went into, well, I need to put this into action. And I've written, you know, several grants and where he works at the University of Richmond. I've been fortunate enough that they've given me three. And we've been able to implement some really awesome projects that I have kids today that still email me and parents that message me and even thank me or talk about how it changed the way their kid thought about, about school and how they felt about themselves and that's more authentic than just looking at a curriculum that someone in a suit that's never been in a classroom has written for you. Well, and it's sad because you don't, you know, I'm glad you were able to provide these services to these kids. It sucks that kids that aren't identified like that don't also get to learn that way because I can't imagine that this approach only works for kids that are deemed special needs. Like I think probably anyone would benefit from having well, a teacher um, that focused on developing a relationship first and then, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, and I work with every... a lot of great teachers that try that uh, or that they do that really well. And there's some that try. And I mean, I just have to be honest teaching. I think it's awesome, but there's really, really hard days and there's really, really challenging days where you, you doubt yourself and it, it, it just becomes really hard. And it's not always the kids can sometimes, I mean, just like having your own children, some days with your own kids are really hard and they're really challenging. It's not always the kids. It's the, the system that's put in place. How have you found that? Like, so I've talked to a few teachers before and, you know, and, 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 um, you know, they'll talk about things like uh, like a friend of mine is just always like he fucking hates SOLs, like he fucking hates them. Um, because literally it got to the point where he was having to – he was teaching honors level classes. He had to cut out I think like basically his curriculum down to like a quarter of what it was just to fucking be able to c- cover the SOL stuff. In time, yeah. Which didn't even really seem like it was effective at – like way as a way of like teaching, you know, um, how has, how's your experience been with like, like kind of like standardized, uh, the standardized testing and all that? Um, I think that standardized testing hurts the most marginalized students, the most, it impacts them the most negatively. I think that it's not equitable in any type of practice. And I don't teach, I mean, I teach the standards because, I have to. I teach them a very different way. And the way I look at it, I've been, my kids have been really successful. Um, I don't care that they're successful, not because I don't want them to do well, but we know that if I'm teaching a student who cognitively reads on a third grade level and is expected to take a test written on an eighth grade level, how is that equitable? How is that meeting that kid where they are, allowing them to show you what they, they know or the skills they've mastered, how they can? Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. So I kind of look at test as something we have to do. We work mm-hmm. really hard during the year. We have a, a good time learning. We develop a love of learning and a community and loving each other and taking care of each other. And the test takes care of itself. We don't even right. we don't even talk about it. We don't talk about the test. 
we they've done it so many times at this point they know what it's coming that it's coming they know that it's a high stakes test but we don't talk about it we we put in the work and the rest takes care of itself we don't need to talk about it and that's just kind of the way i approach it some people with some teachers will probably like not be happy that i said that but i don't really care <laughs> because that's that's what works for me and well, I, I honestly it's, it's worked really well for my kids i think a lot of it is fear based too you know i mean like Schools are afraid of losing accreditation. Um, they're afraid of not making those numbers. You know, I mean, a lot of the whole thing, I think, behind the SOL is just it's a reportable metric that the state can be like, we're adequate, look. And it's an interesting thing when you gear your entire curriculum to teaching to, like, the lowest bar of what is adequate. Because you end up like fucking kind of failing everybody, like the kids that aren't up to can't meet that standard, like you can't put the time into finding the way to teach them in a way that works for them. The, the kids that are above that standard, you can't find a way that to work in teaching that means to them. And then the kids that are, you know, at the standard, it's just fucking boring. Yeah, <laughs> it just seems like a bad it's a horrible, horrible model. And then the, the the lower performing schools that need the most resources get the least because they perform poorly on the test. Like, in what world does that make any sense? Well, and I want to ask you kind of specifically about that. So for a while, you taught out in Powhatan, and, and recently you, you switched to city. But in the, in, in the special education realm, like – Kids that are there that would get selected to be in that class, how much of that do you think comes from like economic issues, maybe parents having to work a lot, um, not being able to maybe be as present with their kids? Have you seen any kind of like like economic influence in that between like those two areas where you taught? Absolutely. And it was similar in Palatine. Um, I know we talked about this a little bit. There, There's a – in Palatine, you have – very affluent families in one district, and then also right. very a very poor community in the district as well. And you hit the nail on the head. It's not because these parents, and I feel like that's where a lot of, there's a lot of contempt and people get upset. Parents think, they're, they're already nervous. They're trying their best, right? They have to work two jobs. They can't be as present as they want to, not because they want to, they don't want to be present. They're, they're trying their best. And then at the same time, you have some teachers that and I maybe I don't know anyone that's experienced this, like talk to you like you're supposed to be well versed in educational pedagogy, right? Like you're supposed to know all these things instead of just treating them like a human because they are trying their best. They're sending you the very best thing they have. And there just has to be everyone needs to be validated and heard because there are a lot of building blocks that are missed from that. And that's not the parent's fault. That's the, the, the system that they're in, right? Like it's the state of how they're existing. And I do think there's a huge link. We know there's a huge link to disabilities and socioeconomic issues. Right. Well, you know, and that's kind of what, you know, as a parent and going to like schools and stuff like this, like I had no fucking clue how many parents were fucking just not present, you know, but like after, kind of, you know, taking my kid to bunches of elementary schools and kind of meeting stuff, 
I'd say there's probably a really small percentage of parents that are fucking off and just not being good parents. And they're probably all over the economic spectrum. You know what I mean? Like some of them are fucking rich. Some of them are fucking poor. But I've also noticed. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of poor people that work a lot and can't spend the time with their kids. And also because where my kids have been, there's a lot of rich people <laughs> that work a lot and can't spend the time with their kids. And, right. you know, I mean, we're talking about like doctors, fucking, you know, like surgeons, like, like, and, and they'll actually like kind of like make this like curriculum to kind of make up for that at my kid's school. Like knowing that you're like, yo, you really want, you get to see your kid one hour a week because you're like a freaking surgeon or some shit. Um, but I think it has ended up having the same negative effect. It's, it's like, that lack and maybe it's because of a lack of actual understanding of the kid kind of like what you're talking about where you start building the relationship maybe it's the parents don't have that kind of understanding um just because they really don't have the time to really understand like how their kid learns or something like that oh absolutely and then you also have this influx recently what i've experienced and i don't know this has anything to do with disabilities but just parents in there how they feel towards the school and education and they don't know what to do mm-hmm. it's very contentious right now like there's this big debate like you have this large vocal group that talks about equality and they don't understand that they can't discern between equality and equity they see equity as a slight to them so you have this big shift where like you see in florida like there's just so many crazy things coming on, like curriculum and teachers. Teachers are being fired. Curriculum is being rewritten if they find it to be too CRT based, or like just and it's just these ridiculous things where I don't think anyone knows what to do anymore. <laughs> Everyone's so yeah. confused. Well, it's it, the whole process has become very political, um, in a really ridiculous kind of way to the point where. I'm not sure we can really agree on as a country what a fact is <laughs> without like um <laughs> without like you know 10 people being like no it's not and 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 another 10 being like yeah it is and I feel like teachers are are kind of they're beholden to the idea that that things like science and things that can be peer reviewed like that has generally been the the way that like teaching or education because it it's it it pulls from so many sciences that's how what would be considered a fact would be vetted and i feel like we're in a time where people are kind of pushing that away and being like well you know what i feel like this is actually more right and kind of basing our education more on our feelings Rather than like, oh yeah, it's all emotionally what can be based, em- empirically proven. <laughs> or they Which see a TikTok video, or they see a TikTok video with um. I hear this all the time from parents. Well, I saw a TikTok video, and it's like some like blurb that's taken out of context. But when you isolate it, it sounds really powerful and very different. Right. And then they base like this their whole like everything, all the decisions they make on like this misinformation and it becomes really almost scary as a teacher. It has to be because like, I mean, you spend your, most of your life afraid that like, especially, you know, 
if someone hasn't gone through, what did what 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 was your highest level of degree that you had attained? I have two bachelor's degrees. Okay, so you, you, I'm sure you wrote things in college where you were afraid of getting charged with plagiarism, like every college student is, and that you can get that if you don't cite your sources correctly. Like right. not not like you're stealing it from somebody, but like you just literally <laughs> don't cite this one little thing. And depending on the professor you have, they'll be like, oh, well, you just made that or you just took that from, you know, you're not proving that this thing can happen. And it's a it's kind of what academic truth and, and this kind of thing, like kind of like sounds off of is like, you know, you have to be able to prove these things. And so it's got to be amazing to like. I've gone through that process and understand that kind of like that kind of framework of how this all works and to be put in a position where um, your lessons are competing with TikTok videos. Yes. And kind of like going back to how this conversation all started, I just stick to my roots, like community that raised me. And there's actually a lot of teachers like myself. um, I didn't realize it until you know, and within during the pandemic, when I had time to sit and look at other people like me and podcasts, there's a lot of punk rock teachers that have these punk rock teaching communities and your oh, roots yeah. are your strength. Like that's, that's my strength, right? So I just take that and I put it in my classroom. It's more authentic. The kids see me in a different way. I'm not just, we, we grew up, we didn't like authority figures, right? These kids, nothing's changed. Like kids still don't like authority figures. That they're just being told to blindly trust and never question that hasn't changed so i think when i build these relationships and i'm not just a teacher i'm a real person and they understand my likes my interest and i share a genuine interest in theirs and we learn about each other and why maybe this person feels differently in the class than this kid over here and you know my, some of my classes are self-contained but i'm in much larger settings i think throughout the course of the week i teach about 200 students Oh, a lot wow. of them are general education students. Some of my students are in collaborative settings, but they're all my kids. And I just, I run the classes a very different way. Like there, there are basic norms we all have to follow. And I don't approach it from these are the rules that we must follow by the school. Like we come up with them together. And I think that's kind of a standard thing now. Like we establish classroom norms. I let the kids do it. And the first thing I ask them, it's never what I expect of them. Like, well, what do you expect from me? Like, what does that look like? What does it look oh, wow. like when you come in here and I'm in here? What What are your expectations of me? And they, they'll tell you. And you just have to listen. I think a lot of people will say that, but they don't listen. Like, I listen to them. And we build this community. I don't mind when they question me. I don't mind when they come up with different ideas because that's how we evolve and become better. Like, just because they're kids, it, it, you can't discount it. They have the most, like, innocent your amazing ideas to complex problems. So I really value, you know, the conversations that we have. And we kind of really build a, my goal is to build a community where if we can't do something, we do it ourselves. We figure out how to do it. I work in the city of Richmond. I don't have resources like I did in Palatan. Palatan has infinite resources, it seems. (laughs) In Richmond, that's not the case. So when the kids want to do something or I want to do something, we do it together. And I guess it's like that DIY ethic, right? And I instill that in them. Oh, you want to learn about this? Let's do it. And I can apply just about any interest they have to whatever lesson we need to learn. 
and it's more authentic. They have a bigger connection to it. It's experiential. And the results just, they work better for me with my teaching style. And at the end of the day, we have a community in my room because your your school is one of your first communities that you like exist in. Yeah. I mean, that's really the main goal of right? elementary is is like you're you're basically learning how to not be a dick <laughs> well and you know and there are certain things like you can equate like a good analogy like driving down the street well there are certain things we have to do because it prevents you from dying and other people from dying like when you're driving down the street you don't drive on the left side of the road in the united states because sure. not just because it's against the law but you would inflict unnecessary harm to someone else so we kind of approach it like that we really try to have an environment where I try to set the tone where people can be who they are and how they see themselves. And what's amazing is the kids that, you know, are identified as having special needs or, you know, your general education peers, how they all start to work together and just start to eventually they intuitively pick up on these things as well kind of like I think we did growing up like we just accepted everyone for who they were we weren't afraid to have conversations with people and sometimes that involves critiquing people and it's okay to be critiqued and I teach that as well it's okay to be constructively criticized and it's okay to have feedback and revise what you're doing based on feedback how what you do affects other people yeah, I mean that's 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 an amazing. If you can teach a kid, like like that was something that I didn't even really learn how to like take like positive feedback or something like that until I was like being like a recording engineer and like your job depends on like your ability to you know have someone give you the feedback and you not take it personally. I, I feel like a lot of folks kind of mistake those two things. You know, they're, they're taking it as a uh, an appraisal of themselves rather than the the work. Right. And there's a lot of conversations about that we have early on when we're establishing our room, how to give criticism or feedback. It has to be constructive. You don't just say something out of malice or meanness because you don't like an idea. If you don't right. like an idea, then you need to provide something positive, how you might improve upon that or what didn't work for you so that the outcome is better and it's inclusive of everyone. How have you found, you're talking about inclusivity and talking about equanimity and equality and all these things. Um, how have you found kids and themselves and how they react to like these differences? Do they recognize things like um, economic differences or racial differences or gender differences amongst the kids? Like in these age groups, how, how do they deal with difference? You know, in elementary school, you know, I'm in middle school now. I teach eighth grade. In elementary school, there, it doesn't really exist. Um, I should, well, I shouldn't say that. Kids, it, when I taught like much younger grades, like second third, fourth grade, um, fourth grade, they're starting to recognize things about their peers, but they, a lot of these things are taught, right? Like they're taught that people are different from them. They're taught that these people that they deem to be different should conform to how everyone else is where I think for myself, it's like, no, we, not everyone should conform. We accept people for who they are. And the idea of everyone conforming 
to what someone deems as normal is crazy. And I don't think they notice those things at a younger age. And I feel like a lot of that responsibility is in the communities that they're being put in to, Mm -hmm. to set that standard. I think as they get older and you, you have a child that's approaching middle school age, like Mm -hmm. things, things get different. Um, when you're younger, they don't have that fear. There's not that embarrassment. They're not afraid to say things in class or do things or feel like they're standing out necessarily. By the time they get time they get to fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, there's there's a lot of fear of, you know, they're, they're embarrassed. They're trying to figure out who they are. They don't want to put things out there that they might feel embarrassed by. And I do think that there are times where you, I don't know that they, I guess some, there's always the outliers that will capitalize on someone's difference. You know, those, right. I, I noticed this about you and they capitalize on that. And what it comes down to is like, I just had, you know, those are conversations with those students because usually it's something bigger that they're not noticing differences or even really or, or care about them because they don't. There's something bigger economic wise, home life, outside of school, inside of school where they're projecting. So I don't necessarily, gotcha. that, was a, that was a long roundabout way to say that, but I don't see that the kids, um, gender differences, it's not even a thing. That's, that's, that's a news thing. That, <laughs> that is a media thing. There's no questions in my building of what restroom someone uses or anything. If someone says what pronouns they use or there's, I haven't seen anything in my building where there's been any pushback. The kids just accept it. They're like, okay, cool. Like, it's not even a thing because it's it's not a thing. <laughs> so I don't see that. Um, racially, now my school is, I guess, I think like 94% um, the student body is, is a black population. There are some things that are said to me that are, they're not derogatory by any means, but there are things they notice. Like I had a student come to me and ask, why are my history teachers always white? Well, that's a good question. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, that's a valid question. You know, I was talking to my mom at dinner and I asked her, why do the people that teach me history, why are they always white? Well, that's a really valid question. And <laughs> I, I think that deserves an answer too. Yeah. So they, do notice, I mean- they do notice things like that. That's got to be like a crazy thing to realize as a kid that is like a black kid in the city. You know, you hear these things about, you know, being lied to about history and then realizing that no one that that looks like you is teaching looks like you. Yeah. Like that's got to be a bit fucking unconcerting. And I'm not going to lie, as ignorant as this makes me sound, until my students put into perspective like that for me, I can't say that I had thought about it in that lens. And then I was like, oh, my God, why have I never thought about it like that? Is it because I'm so wrapped up in doing what I have to do to get through the day that, whoa, like it really like my mouth hit the floor because like it was like this moment like you're absolutely right. Right. And that's what I said. I'm like, yeah. you are absolutely right. That's crazy. You know, talking about the differences between these two school systems, you said you had a lot of resources out in Palatine and then Richmond's much more limited. What are the things that you're finding yourself like as a teacher? Um, 
Like, like I, I see these things where like teachers are having to do like these fucking drives for their basic ass school supplies in the city. Supplies. Like, like, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, why the fuck is that a thing? Like, why doesn't the school system supply you with that? And and well, did you have them at Palatine? There's always things we run out of. When I was in Palatine, it was basic things like kids go through pencils and things like that. Like no one's business. And I firmly believe if a kid needs a pencil, I'm not that teacher that says too bad. That's your responsibility. Cause then they sit there and they're disengaged and they're mad. And I would rather have them in the fold and being part of the community. So there are things like we may request, Hey, can you send in a box of pencils for the classroom or for your kids? But these were like very basic things that we know run out really quickly. Uh, the difference in Richmond, and I've only been here a short time, but it's almost jaw dropping, like technologically wise. Like, I don't know if all the buildings are like mine and my school is awesome. I, I work with a tremendous staff and administration, but just things to put them where their peers around the country and around the world are, are lacking. Like, sure. They all have a Chromebook. We don't have other capabilities in the building that other school districts have. So it's almost like we're falling behind. Like we have oh, like, wow. I'm trying to find the right words to articulate it. I, we can't just sit them on a Chromebook and be like, hey, look, they all have one-to-one Chromebooks. And then in class, they're on there watching Netflix. Like, that's not, that's not preparing them to explore things they're interested in or engage them in ways to help them think about things in a deeper way. <laughs> like, so, so what you're saying like, is like the, the, the curriculum for the technology isn't there. Well, I think the curriculum is probably there, but it's on the teachers to develop it. A lot of things that people have done that we can Mm -hmm. use, but I feel like for the most part, that's on the teacher to figure out how to incorporate all of that. Um, I worked at VCU briefly um, years ago, and I I was just like a fucking errand person slash fix your computer guy when they figured out I could do that shit too. Um, but I worked in this interesting little room is it's called the, um, center for teaching excellence. And what these guys did was like, they just like prototyped everything for the university. So it was like a, a really diverse group of these like professors, like some of them would be sociologists, some of them would be like, you know, something else. And what they do is like when VCU needed like, Oh, we, whatever was their blackboard thing or like whatever their, uh, grade keeping stuff or any kind of thing, mm-hmm. these guys would basically, um, you know, figure out what was the best way to do this. And, and then VCU would send money, spend money to send them all over the fucking country to all these conferences, doing all this research and shit. Um, they kind of come up with, and they would basically build and prototype curriculum right there and then put it into the university. Um, and it sounds like maybe Richmond needs something like that where they can have like folks that are like on top of it, like kind of building these things out. And, you well, know, and I feel like we have some of that in place and there may be more for me to learn being fairly new to teaching in the city of Richmond, but I feel like it's not that people don't want to do it. I think some of the demands, and I know we've talked about this in the past, just you and I, some of the demands of teachers, and the behaviors and things we're seeing with our youth right now, like just in society, it it makes it really hard to do all of that effectively. I think there's so much on a teacher's plate 
Right. That doing everything you want to do and give everything the kids need is really, really difficult. Well, it's, you know, it's very interesting that like, so, so one thing I've, I've heard from uh, teachers that I've talked with is, is that when you're at a Richmond public school, um, the majority of stuff that you would have to do compared to what a county school is, is um, you, you, you spend a lot more time on basic needs of the child that aren't even really related to education. But like kind of right, emotional those stability. Things have to ex- right, they have to exist first stability. before education can happen. Yeah, I mean, like when the fucking pandemic happened and Richmond closed down, they didn't know what they are going to do education-wise, but within a fucking hour, I think, they had the food distribution shit already figured out for like, how are we going to go virtual? Well, well, we can't stop feeding these kids because these kids can't get meals sometimes if it's just relied on for a home because of poverty and things like that. So before they even had the education thing, they already had the food part. And I think that's, I don't know, it, 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 it's kind of weird because I think as Richmond being like the capital of the state, you would think that we would have the resources to kind of make it the education capital of the state. But in reality, it's like those are maybe the counties around it. <laughs> well, you know, I just think there's like a larger, like overarching problem that was I I don't think it was just the pandemic I think we are starting to see it before the pandemic and I can't even put my finger on what has happened but there is I'm trying to think of the right words here there is something terribly wrong there's something terribly wrong in our communities in the way I'm trying to find the right words here without sounding like a jerk something has happened where kids we know there's more mental illness we know, especially in our students that were adolescents when the pandemic started, a lot of those friendships that you develop at those ages didn't exist. So there's a lot of building blocks that are missing. And I think there's a huge impact socially on these kids that are now progressing through school and what we're seeing like behavior-wise, because I'm experiencing behaviors I've never experienced in almost 20 years. Noam Chomsky describes the way that we kind of exist now as being atomized, like like the opposite of community, because of things like social media, and and, the, and they're not really, and it's not really any one of these particular things' fault. But you know, when we grew up, we went out and played in the woods, and our parents didn't really know where we were, and we basically kind of relied on these networks of our friends. Now, if you have a kid and you let them do that, they would, you'd probably go to jail because you don't know where your child is. And I mean, right. and, and, and rightfully so, because <laughs> they would be a very more obvious target than the thousands of kids that were roaming around when we were kids. But with that though, I, I wonder if some of that is some kind of mental um, development issue that has occurred kind of based on this. It, what you're talking about really is just, it's isolation. You know, it's, it's, oh, it's absolutely. Thing of being atomized. And with that, you end up, maybe not developing the way that you need to. And I'm kind of to jump ahead. I know if you're an elderly person and you're not around a lot of people, you have a higher risk of developing things like dementia because Mm -hmm. you don't get a reality check. You know, like you'll start thinking something's a little bit off. And if no one's there to be like, no, that's not how it is. 
then you might just keep going down that road. And, and it, it's a kind of common thing that you'll see folks that kind of get isolated. Maybe their um, partner dies or something like that. Right. Isn't that like rapidly. the number one thing they say? Like when you retire or when a partner dies to find a hobby or an interest. Yeah. And, so and you have that cognitive decline. Yeah. And so I wonder if it's like this, what you're seeing is actually not only this isolation, but this new world of information where you can find the information that already correlates with what you believe. Right. Rapidly. And then, easily. <laughs> and, and you don't have to be the think the thing that's scariest. We kind of talked about this is we're not learning how to be discerning with right. the information we receive. Um, we also know, like, like you said, social media was how kids communicated during while they're at home. Now there were the outliers that hung out, like nothing ever changed. Um, you had the boom of TikTok. Well, everything is given to you in really rapid, fast chunks to where I have kids that can't sit through five minutes of a lesson. And I don't wow. think it's their fault. I don't think it's their fault. I think that something, there's been a shift and I can't, like I said, I can't quite put my finger on it. And I think in the coming months, years, we'll be able to put our finger on it better because this is all relatively new. We're three years out of this isolation we were in. And we're, we, honestly, like even students, what, in Richmond up until last year, they were still virtual for half the year. Yeah. So there is this sense of isolation and getting things and gratification instantly. Like I can look up anything I want on YouTube or TikTok or all these other platforms, things I don't even know about because I'm an old lady and I rely on my kids to teach me um, where they get that instant gratification. And we talk about Boy. that a lot. Like they, my kids make TikTok videos in class because they, <laughs> they're so obsessed with it. They can't stay off their phone. And that's a school rule, right? Like you can't use your phone during class. Well, I had to throw that rule out the window like because it wasn't going to happen. That's a hill I wasn't willing to die on. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of that is accepting. Like when, when my, my kid was really young, me and their mom were kind of like going back and forth. I'm like, well, you know, should we have a lot of screen time? And I know some folks wanted to kind of not have their kids on it, but me having had a technical background, I realized like, I think this is their language. Like the screen is going to be their, their language and they need to be fluent on it or else they're not going to, excel in the new opportunity areas that pop up. And that's an interesting kind of difficult area because you don't want to get them into that attention soak thing. But simultaneously, you don't want them to be like, you know, getting hired and being like, I don't know what a computer is. I don't know how to use this at all. <laughs> right. Um, and everyone, then you know, they're afraid of AI and they're this and that and the other. And now chat GPT is an enemy. I use chat GPT all the time. <laughs> Like, I love it. Oh, wow. I think it's outstanding. I, I used it once, and I was just like, I don't know what I think about this, and then I just went and did something else. I think I went and watched YouTube videos instead. Well, it took but me then, a while. Like, you learn how to prompt it and use it as a tool. Like, it. wow, what an efficient way to solve some, like, organizing problems for myself that I, so I can do what I need to do. Well, so that's a good point here. So, okay, so TikTok's not allowed in your school screens aren't allowed in your school but but we live in this time where you know when we were kids if we didn't know how to do multiplication then we couldn't work somewhere at least that was what i was told to us but now these kids grew up in a place where like where are they not going to have a calculator right 
Because we were told, you know, oh, you're not always going to have a calculator. Well, now I have one in my pocket all the time. <laughs> and honestly, you don't even need a calculator because you can just ask Google. Right. And that's like that forever now. <laughs> so it's like – I think what need, there needs to be a change in maybe how that's taught. And I've talked, I've, I've talked with like colleagues about this. The concept is what's important. Right. The concept of when to multiply, when to divide, and a lot of these things, the way I think about it, especially for my students, these concepts are very important so they can advocate for themselves when they have a job, when they're making money. We know that my my students tend to be exploited, right? Like they need to be able to ad- advocate for themselves and understand how to, well, how much money should I have? How do I do this? Because those are very important things. I don't like to think about money all the time. But the fact is, is that we have to have it to live, right? <laughs> so I'd rather right. them be able to advocate for themselves and understand how that works. Like, this probably get me in trouble, but that's okay. My math, I have to teach an algebra class. My yeah. kids can't count money. They don't understand the different denominations. These are eighth graders. Um, and yeah, why I say would this they? because, right, but, you know, they, they want to. They they were they were asking me questions about money, so I brought in a big bag of change, and it's crazy for 20 minutes, and they loved it. I dumped it on the table. I said, "All right, let's count this money." And literally once a week, these are 14 year olds, and was some of them almost 15. Can we count that money? <laughs> and oh, wow. just well, they don't have and this correlation like with skip counting and different things. And one of my students said the most brilliant thing I had never thought about. He's told me, he always tells me, he said, well, you're an old lady. And I don't get offended by this because he's just being honest. He views me as an old lady and I am. So he's like, well, you're an old lady. You play board games and stuff. Y'all would roll the dice and like skip count and do that. We don't do that. And I was like, whoa, that's pretty profound. I've never really thought about that. We did these things with all this one-to-one correspondence where they're not. Wow. Like I'm telling you, kids will kids will solve your problems for you if you just listen to them. Like they'll and they feel comfortable telling you. They'll tell you how they need to learn, how they need to be taught. Man, that's that's really interesting. You know, but kind of continue with that idea. It's like, well, you know, so if you want your kids to not get taken advantage of, kind of teaching the the basics of like what their personal agency is. You know, I think mm-hmm. I think I think, and and this kind of goes to the to the bigger problem I think we're seeing in the country right now is I don't I think people get too hung up on like knowing what a conclusion should look like rather than understanding the principles in it, and so they'll kind of get swept into you know seeing something look a certain way and they'll be like, Oh, that's clearly because of this when they're not really able to look at the situation and be like, actually, this is the the thing that's happening in it. And this is why it's right or wrong. Right. And that's, no, kind, I of totally harder, agree with that. That, that's kind of a harder thing to teach, you know, and it, it, because also, you know, when we're talking about emotions, it's, it's a lot more boring than looking at the way a conclusion looks. You know what I mean? Like a conclusion looks, you know, it's great. And that's all movies are. It's like fucking conclusions. (laughs) Which actors making them look sweet. Um, But like, you know, I think, yeah, like how, how do you take those deeper dives? And that's really important, like deeper dives into breaking things down. And I think we've kind of, we hit this, like 
you're teaching, oh gosh, I have to teach this SOL and this standard, this strand, I have to do this, I have to spiral back to this. And you're not really having the time to have some of those really important conversations and go deeper to really understand all sides of a, a complex problem instead of just this neat, tidy little conclusion that's a lot easier to just come up with, right, instead of doing the hard work. Well, and, and that kind of goes, uh, my friend Tim, who I had, had on a couple of times, he pointed out that knowledge is really this process that, like, you gather information, and then you take time and reflect on it. And that's where you build knowledge. And so it's, it's personal. It's, it's basing everything, all the data that you've accumulated with, you know, your life experiences, maybe your past experiences of quanti quantifying information, um, things you know from other fields, and then you build your own personal knowledge. And that requires time. It requires, like, being able to, like, sit there and think about stuff. And I think one of the other things that's kind of in society that we're dealing with right now is because of time crunches and these attention shifts, people are just buying – they're just taking knowledge from the TV or from the the news thing. Like instead of having their own knowledge, they're accepting someone else's and kind of using it. And that doesn't really put you in a position where you can actually decide if you actually believe in something. What you end up doing is vetting – can I trust this person or not? Yes. Then I'll just use their knowledge as my own. <laughs> right. Does that make sense? That, it makes total sense. And I feel like it preys on my students in particular. Like they, they count on students like, like that I teach that need that time and they have difficulty right. being discerning and need that direct instruction, how to break things apart and come to their own conclusions. And I think that there's always bad actors that that prey on those types of folks or situations. Oh, yeah. And every realm, you know, I mean, I see it, you know, and I see it in the Republican Party. I see it in the Democratic Party. Like oh, there, there's, folks, there's folks that, you know, they got to make a living making things awesome seeming even when they're not. And, you know, I mean, that's their job. And sadly, they also profess to make knowledge and <laughs> so yeah have y'all had had any kind of i know with certain schools there's been a lot of movement kind of towards you know kind of talking about this like attention thing to create like things like mindfulness time and like kind of like trying to incorporate that like y'all have any of that at your school we do we um we start the day with that um and it's kind of a scripted, well, at my age group, they, they don't particularly, it, it started off rocky. There's a lot of pushback. They, um, they don't want to always share how they feel. And a lot of that is because of their situations. Like there, there's trauma. There's a, a multitude of reasons why they don't want to share out how they're feeling mm -hmm. or talk about a given topic. And I think that comes with time. Um, it is a scripted program, which, I, I it's I think it's well done. I don't think it's enough to just do it, start the day with that. Um, yeah. I think there does have to be time for mindfulness or just for your yourself. And maybe that's even just you're overwhelmed. Sometimes school is really hard. Something happened before school. Something happened during the course of the day that triggered you or really just sent you into a tailspin. Like we work on 
it's okay to give yourself a break. Like, like, especially like during test taking, like, are you kidding me? These kids are expected to take these rigorous tests and throughout the school year, I, I encourage, take a break, make a list, write down. I have them make me list a, a, a playlist they want me to play. Like just something where you are doing something that makes you happy. You have a time to gather your thoughts or whatever you need to do. And maybe that means pushing your chair back away from your desk and sitting there for a minute. That's okay. And I think for so long, and I hate to keep going back to 25 years when I was growing up, like, are you kidding me? If I pushed my chair away from the desk and sat there for a minute, it would have been over. I would have been yelled at. (laughs) But by the same token, you know, there's been so much knowledge that has been come to understand in like the realms of productivity since then that people are like realizing like, Oh, you know, happy people tend to work better. You know, like, like people that are like remotely right. healthy tend to like function better. And like, well, we also you know, know like your working memory, your working memory can only hold, but so much at one time. Have that, that time to process that. And if you have a processing delay like I do, like you mm-hmm. have to have that time to process it. So kind of asking about that, have you seen a lot of things like that? Like so comparing your experience at school where you're teaching now and the way that these kids have everything structured in terms of like being able to take breaks, um, kind of more focusing on like how they're doing. Is the curriculum now more reflective of that understanding that we have now or is it? Is it kind of just like how it was when we were kids? I think that there is great effort. There is great effort to to do those things. I think there's a lot of hot button words or hot phrases and words we use to make it sound really good on paper, like differentiating learning, like all these things that people need, that our students Mm. need. Now in practice, I don't, think that it happens as much as teachers want it to. And this is not me blaming educators because I'm an educator. I think it's systemic. And I think that's why you're seeing teachers run away in droves because they can't do all the things they need to do. Like, how can you? Like the time constraints, the needs that we're seeing, making sure all those students have everything they, they need at the end of the day, like sometimes you feel like you did your best, but you also feel like a disappointment sometimes, like you let kids down because it's such a insurmountable task some days to, to do everything. And the emotional toll that takes that sometimes teachers need to put into practice what we're teaching the kids. And, and we don't, I don't know that we get a chance to. No, well, I mean, cause I mean, if you're being expected to, you know, teach the kids to have like this mindfulness time and to, and to like think about how they're doing but you as a teacher, if that's not part of your relationship with your job, then that's kind of crazy too. You know what I mean? Like, like if you're not given that time as a teacher to also have that space, then it ends up kind of the whole thing ends up getting hampered because you're, you're, you're still having that drive to make all that stuff happen. I was going to ask you about it. You, you just brought it up kind of, but, but like, you know, you're hearing about all these teachers leaving. So you think it's just because of that kind of crunch that they're under? I think it's, it's so many things. Um, I think the demands can be, can feel unreal. Like I, teachers take home work every night and work till like 10, 11 o'clock at night. And 
for a long time, I felt really guilty. And there's still to this day, teachers are like, oh, you don't work from home? No, I don't. <laughs> like, I don't take any work home with me. Because I've realized if you want me to stick around and be healthy and do what the one thing I've seemed to be really good at in this life is to work with kids, then I, I, I can't. I have to completely shut that part of my life down and be with my family and the people who love me the most. Yeah, that's what makes sense. And I feel like there's so much teacher guilt. Like mm. your kids, your family has to be put on the back burner. Well, I get one shot at this life, right? When curtain right. call comes, it's over. Like with, when it's curtains, there's nothing else. So I, I have to be my own person outside of school. And I feel like for so many people, school, their job as an educator is their entire life. And if that makes them happy, that's okay. But for me and a lot of other, my fellow colleagues, we talk about how we just have to shut it off. And sometimes if things don't get done, it's not because we want to let anybody down, but they're not getting done because we're not being given the proper tools and time to get them done. And that's just going to have to do. Like there's going to have to be, honestly, we've talked about this <laughs> at school. There, I honestly feel like at some point the whole system has to crumble to be rebuilt properly. Well, it's we're, all we're doing patterns of, that don't serve us. Yeah, I mean, because I, I was thinking about that a few seconds ago. Like, this whole idea, like the whole American education system, is is based off of one dominant theory. I believe it was developed like like some German or Austrian person back in like the nineteen twenties or thirties. I think it was like where the basic idea of kind of how American education is structured. Um, you know, you're, you're talking about such different shifts, like, you know, again, with like trying to shift maybe to m more of a theoretical understanding of things rather than, a um, applicable, like, like when you're talking about like kids really don't need to know how to do long form division per se, but they might need to know the concept or something. Um, right. cause you can't, I mean, I yeah. I mean, because and and for anyone listening, <laughs> that might seem insane <laughs> to you. But imagine this: imagine if you use your cell phone, you had to understand how it fucking worked. Who would use their cell phone? You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. Like, that's a great <laughs> analogy. <laughs> you know, and so like that's the thing is like society has has developed to this point where like yes, these kids have shorter attention spans, but also my kid makes fucking videos and they're nine, and I didn't do that shit until I was like. 20 something you know so so it's like they have all these new capabilities but you kind of have to like now find well what is the thing that makes them um you know most effective or whatever at, at really being in society which is the job of school it's the job of school is not to teach you how to add and subtract the job of school is to teach you how to be functional in the society and so whatever the hell that is required to do that's what you need to learn and so when you're talking about things needing to kind of stop i think maybe there have been so many shifts that we really do need to sit back and be like you know i mean maybe there needs to be a class on how to be a fucking uber driver or how to um <laughs> uh deliver packages for amazon because like that's what a lot of our economy looks like now you know and there's not a lot of things that are involved in you know um our education that are part of that, but simultaneously you also want to like teach these fundamentals of like thought and and um, 
and concepts so that, you know, folks can kind of encounter new things and, 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 and have a framework in which they can kind of figure out how to take something apart. Well, these kids are smart. Like while we're seeing this big shift and we're seeing behaviors and all these other things and like kind of like the shift in society, but these kids are savvy. They're smart. They think of things that I would have never thought of at their age. Like we have kids their age with successful like platforms, like on TikTok and so all different like YouTube and all yeah, different sorts amazing. of social media, right? But right. they they get <laughs> like it. Like your kids the got ten thousand followers. Right. The psychology behind it they get. They know how to my kids are so clever. They're so funny. Like they understand how to draw someone in and to develop like a following, right? Um I don't mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounds like a cult, but but they're just um they're far more savvy and think about things in a different way and it's it's fascinating to me. Like I would have never thought about creating content that is interesting and constantly is interesting and new, but these kids can do it. Well, it's and we're not really tapping into that. Because that's also the reason that this whole dynamic is probably shifting is because of content like that. And it's like, like there was a, um, Oh God, this guy, Neil Postman, he, he was like a technology writer back in like the eighties. And he's real, he was really critical of technology. And he said that one of the things about technology is like its main goal is to propagate itself almost like a virus. And what you're saying there is, is crazy resonating with that on me. Cause what I'm thinking of is the kids have a short attention spans because of TikTok, but somehow they've learned to make better TikToks. Right. Like, like they've distilled <laughs> knowledge in that area to propagate the technology. Oh my God. Yeah. But with that, they can do all these different things. Right. Like, and I'm not even going to lie. Like, when we're in class and I need something, or we're we're trying to, you know, we have this system where we have to assign grades and all this this stuff, which that's a whole another ball of wax. But um, there's these. We should have these common assessments and this and that and. You know what? If my <laughs> there's been times where I'm like, you know what? You're really good at this. Take that Chromebook, make a video explaining this to me. And the things that they come back with are so creative and demonstrate the skill. So how is that wrong? How is that wrong versus them doing it on a multiple choice test? They've just showed me in a much deeper way that they can demonstrate a skill or understand it. <laughs> and that's so so much more valuable to me and to them because they it's like that love of learning, right? Well, Oh yeah, I can show you. I can show you the way where I see myself showing you. This is what I'm good at. I do stuff like that all the time. Now, whether it's right or wrong, I don't know, but that's what I do. And I would much rather them show me that than shut down because it facilitates the conversation and they're sharing with me what they're, they're good at and where they see themselves. And in my eyes, that's the most important. We don't all see ourselves in the same place. Well, you know, their own view of themselves, I think, is the most important thing, you know, in that development cycle. I mean, and that's really why we get kids into sports, why we get them into band and stuff, is to try and give them the confidence to the point where they can, you know, maybe be able to come up with a solution on their own. So it sounds like, you know, if you're able to do that with this, like, you you know, you're, you're getting a spot where they can have confidence that, like, 
hey, I can solve this thing in a way that's like, that's kind of amazing that you're able to do that. Um, kind of wrapping up, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, like as a parent, um, everybody's always wondering what the best things they can do for their kids education is, you know, and some folks will be like, well, I'm going to send my kid to like these extra classes or something, or maybe some like, um, you know, tutoring or something like that. Um, but what have you seen as like being the most effective ways, like for the best students, like what were the, what were the parents doing that you think really, really contributes to like a kid's, um, educational success? All right. I'm going to give a couple examples. First, from my own experience, because as a public educator, you would think that my son would be in public education. After my son was virtual, he has a lot of struggles, like I do, with learning. He crumbled. He fell apart. He didn't feel prepared to even go back into a the schoolhouse to learn mm-hmm. in that setting. And he came to myself and his father and his stepfather and, like, talked to all of us. And he wanted all of our input. He's like, look, this doesn't work for me. And he was advocating for himself. He's like, I need this. And he presented, he goes to Stanford University online. He goes to their high school program. He takes two courses at a time. It's kind of structured like college where he felt that he needed to focus on two things at a time and really understand them and be able to get into them versus six or seven classes at one time, which in my brain, I had never really thought about that. I was like, well, that makes perfect sense. But he was advocating for himself. And I think that when you have a kid that's advocating for themselves and they're coming to you with a solution and they want help coming up with a solution, I think as a parent, you have to listen. I feel like that is the biggest thing is like listening to your kids. If they're saying something isn't working, Now, we know sometimes kids, something's not working because they perceive it to be hard or a lot of work and they don't want to do it. And that's a, that's just a natural kid thing. I do that as an adult. Um, But when they're coming to you and like saying, this really doesn't work for me and I have a solution that I I think will work, I think it's really important to listen to them because I realized, um, you know, Brooks, my husband pointed out to me that I was looking at a scenario where he was clearly unhappy and things weren't working for him in the school building. And I could either watch him graduate or, and find things that he was interested in, or I could watch him go down a different path. And then that really put it in perspective that he was telling me what was best for him and that I really, I needed to explore it and he's thriving. (laughs) He's doing outstanding. Um, In school parents I've had, where their students are most successful, it, it's kind of funny. Like sometimes you have like these authoritarian parents, and I don't want to say authoritarian, maybe negatively, but this is what you need to do, and it's really important. And then they explain why it's important. Then their kids have this sense of why it's important. Um, they tend to do well, but at the same time, like, are they just going through the motions? The kids that have historically done the best with me, and I don't know that it's necessarily grade-wise reflected on paper, but have thrived, and I, they reach out to me as adults when they graduate high school, when they get married. I have dozens of kids that do that every year. These Aww. were the kids that were not afraid to ask questions. They weren't afraid to ask for help. They weren't afraid to 
they felt comfortable enough. And I think that starts at home a lot of the times, feeling comfortable enough to, well, I need you to explain this to me because that doesn't make sense the way it's like this. And to be able to have those conversations. And then when they come to school, they're asking those questions and they're getting a deeper understanding of, I mean, not just academia, but just life, right? Like and understanding other people and the people around them. Well, that's a hard his, thing to do. I mean, because that's showing they're making themselves vulnerable. Um, and and some folks, if they have like a lot of anxiety, you know, that's like the worst thing ever. It's like now you're focusing on yourself, like drawing attention to yourself that like you don't know this thing. And I think that just goes back to the, the community you you put in place inside mm-hmm. the room. My, my kids are not afraid to tell me anything. <laughs> I don't know if it's my personality or, or what. And this isn't like a pat on the back to myself. I think it's because I relate to them. I um, It's really honestly one of the only things I've been good at, right? Like, <laughs> I can oh. get any kid. That I, and it's like this thing, like, in my former district, the kids that were like the toughest nuts to crack, well, give them to Robin. And, and it seemed really like cruel <laughs> at the time. <laughs> like, okay, we're going to give you all of this to do because we, you know, we know you can do it. And wow. eventually I could get them to come around with just like, I don't know. I, just, I think it comes back to intuitively just kind of like reading people and taking the time and kind of like that slow motion way to, understand them so they're not afraid to ask questions or even question something you do like I have kids tell me all the time I don't like the way you did that or maybe I said something and they misinterpreted or maybe I should have rephrased it differently they're like they call me Missy Missy I really I don't like the way you said that to me oh okay well tell me more tell me more because it's it's important because if they don't like the way I said something to them or they don't understand maybe why I said something to them the way I did, then they're not going to feel comfortable coming to me or asking for help. They're going to sit in the classroom and be like, this lady doesn't care, like whatever. But I think that mutual respect, those kids that feel that they can do that and have as a parent or allowing your kids to do that. This is, I mean, there's probably a lot of fancy like educational jargon. I'm not smart enough to know all of that, but my anecdotal experience is that those kids thrive. They've been taught to, to be comfortable when they don't know something or to want to know more or to question when they feel they've been, I don't mistreat any of my students, but just in general, they don't like the tone of something. And, and that's okay because that should be respected. That's valid. And that concludes my interview with Robin Cullum. I'd like to thank Robin for taking the time to talk with me. To find more episodes like this, visit VariousThingsPodcast.com or look for us on your favorite podcast streaming service under the name Various Things. This has been Various Things. Thanks for listening.